from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. Whoops, you did it again. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strasser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, it's all about protecting the big idea that you got inside your head. First, though, remember, please download the Shark Bite Biz app exclusively on the Google Play Store, where you can find Every single episode of this show, both audio, video, it's all right there inside the app. But let's get back to today. I got an awesome guest today. I mean, it's somebody that knows business law, IP law, and also software. I mean, it's one of those great uh, trifectas of expertise that I just love having onto this show. And who could have a better mix for this specific show? We're chatting about how you can best protect your big idea and get approved for that pattern that you have lingering around on your head. So who do we have today? None other than Janan Glasgow George. And yeah, I got to tell you, it's a long intro here, but trust me, it is worth it. Janan is an amazing individual and I've got to cover this all. So let me read this out here and uh, I'm sure you'll be impressed as well. Janan Glasgow George has built her career from engineering to patent law and investment by transforming ideas into assets and connecting innovators to the resources they need to make positive impact. She believes that everyone has the power to create and her work globally is focused on transforming ideas into reality and creating positive commercial impact from them. Her recent book, The IP Miracle, How to Transform Ideas into Assets that Multiply Your Business is a bestseller in its categories on Amazon. A patent attorney and former patent examiner with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, Janan is an IP practitioner, registered patent attorney with the North Carolina Bar and the USPTO. She is the founding partner of Neo IP in Durham, North Carolina, USA, and you can find that at neoipassets.com. She has worked with clients doing business or investing in the United States, Canada, Mexico, United Arab Emirates, Europe, India, Brazil, Jordan, Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, and Kenya for strategic patent analysis and the development of intellectual property rights, including patents, trademarks, and copyrights for licensing and commercialization globally. Janan Glasgow George is a CEO and co-founder of of Dot Patent Forecast, a business intelligence SaaS company that provides insight for investors and executives, serial entrepreneurs and innovators, giving vision ahead of market data using patent data and AI. And you can find out more about that at patentforecast.com. So, hey, despite the long intro, hey, I'm going to shut up. Let's bring Janan right on in here. Business strategy. Janan, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I thank you for coming here. So first question we ask everybody, tradition on the show, what's your experience? What's your background? How'd you get into what you're doing? Basically, in a nutshell, tell us what makes Janan, Janan. All right. I'm a recovered engineer. I had a first career. It was a first career, new product development, research and development. I'm uh, kind of a space junkie. I got into uh, undergraduate research, NASA, Mars Mission Research Center at NC State. So making composite structures for the Mars rover, which finally made it, right? Only 30 years later or so. Um, But as I uh, had 
been making new products, designing them, I thought, well, this is great. What if I can just do that with ideas, create assets from words, and that's patent law. So I tried on the patent examiner role at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and realized I'm not a government worker. Um, went directly into law school and then uh, tried on litigation and decided to create assets. So I launched my own practice in the late 90s in the Raleigh, North Carolina Research Triangle Park area. And uh, from that time, I've practiced um, as a patent attorney, intellectual property lawyer, um, and launched a software company to do research analytics on patent data. So I get geeky really fast. We can take a deeper dive if you wish. But Sounds like you've made a couple jumps there in your career with some career transformations from one industry to the next. Uh, but then at the end of the day, I don't know, it just feels like you just put them all into one big basket and you're doing it like all those different segments almost, except for sending rovers to Mars. Uh, you're doing that uh, now with what you're doing but still actually investing in it now. So I do angel investment and venture capital, and we use this patent data and my work as a patent attorney to help improve the likelihood of success of the companies. So still evolving uh, sort of what my career is, but enjoying it all. So one thing I've always wondered is, you know, around patent law, how, how hard is it? Because, I mean, you've got to think that we've become, we're, we're getting to a point where it's hard to think of new ideas. Like people still think of new ideas, but you're like, you're, you're thinking of something like, oh, you know, this would be a great thing to invent. And then you start researching, oh, wow, yeah, 15 people already invented some variation of this. You know, it, it, are we getting to that point? I mean, go go a little. That's something that's always been a personal interest to me. Explain to me how far along we are, I guess, on the evolutionary thought trail of inventing things. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a great question. There's not that many things that are truly revolutionary. They're rare, right? And that's expected. Um, but on the other hand, we have a lot of problems in the world, right? And what are patents? Patents are inventive solutions to problems. So as long as we have problems, we're going to have inventions and inventive solutions. The thing is that most patents are improvements, as I'm mentioning, like 98% plus, but most people just invent from what they know, right? But the more you see, the more you read, the more you know, um, and what we're seeing as we look with our patent forecast software across every technology area is there are some areas that are really rapidly evolving and advancing. One of those areas is NFTs, non-fungible token. We're seeing over 1,500% growth in patent filings in that area. And then even one narrower slice of that is tokenization of securities, right? Stocks, securities. Um, that has over 7,000% increase in filings in the last five years. Other areas that are evolving, like you think, oh, great, there's nothing new in computing. And yet cloud computing, all the big data centers, that doesn't work as we're moving into Internet of Things, IoT, where we're gonna have like a trillion connected things by 2030. You can't backhaul all that data to the cloud. So how is compute evolving? We need edge computing and serverless so that the processing of the data from those sensors, those things is closer to the source. Cause you need real time, low latency, high reliability, like traffic management for autonomous. So some of these areas are experiencing tremendous growth and maybe some areas are slowing down, right? But I think we'll always be solving problems. So the pen system's here to stay. Definitely. I think, uh, I think so too. I mean, one of the interesting things that um, you started talking about was like the backhaul, the, you know, how that data will get up with all those internet of things devices. And that, you know, the first thing that jumped in my brain was Amazon sidewalk, which is what uh, Amazon uses on all their new Alexa devices. So that way other Alexa devices 
can kind of connect with the small, small percentage of someone's bandwidth and kind of phone home if they don't have internet access. I mean, that that is in a way a little bit about what you were talking about with that, with the Internet of Things. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. And all of these things are going to begin talking to each other, not just talking back to some server. But in your home, we are moving toward the smart homes, our appliances, our refrigerators, our washing machines. I mean, they're going to have to make use of this little bandwidth of thing we call electricity, We've noticed across the United States, right, there have been some rolling blackouts in California and other states due to issues with the power grid. Like when we added these smart things, these uh, smartphones, when they kind of came into, I guess, sort of prominence in the mid 2010s, we saw a 30% increase on demand on the power grid just from charging up our, our smartphones. So now we're electrification of everything, cars, right? How is that going to draw on it? Our devices are going to have to coordinate who powers up when, who's putting power back on the grid. These are some of those solutions I was talking about. It's, yeah, it's improvements. It's evolving, but into some, you know, new problems that we create by electrifying more things. We have to solve them by managing what the grid can do or or making the grid better. It's interesting that you kind of went down the energy rabbit hole. And I call it a rabbit hole because it's something that we've actually discussed to an extent on the show between a couple guests that we've had on between, which were all coincidences, but it educated me uh, quite thoroughly on the matter, as well as we covered it on our live stream. And one of the things that even, I believe it was the... I could be wrong. I believe it was the CHIPS Act, okay? But uh, one of the things that they're pushing forward with that uh, for energy region, uh, reasons are micro reactors, you know, like micro nuclear reactors as far as uh, creating energy or basically... I, I think it was the university in Texas. I can't remember at this point because we covered it uh, almost two months ago. But like uh, the image that we had there was think of a, a nuclear reactor in the back of a semi truck and taking that semi truck to a hurricane area or tornado area or some natural disaster area to be able to get power to people in those situations. Um, you know, but I, I think we are in the cusp of things like that being able to really, you know, be made in a, a safe way to help us power the future more effectively. I definitely think nuclear uh, generation, nuclear power generation is one of the cleanest, uh, probably most efficient ways to solve the power grid problem. Uh, I'll disagree with you or your past guest in saying like, I, I, I'm not uh, thinking it's a good idea to make that very mobile. I think it should be in one spot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you would that's what you would think, but um, apparently, I mean, if you if you look again, this was uh Congress, Biden, they they passed the in the Chips Act. Um, you know, making those mobile nuclear reactors for disaster areas is one of the things that they're spending a lot of cash on. Yeah, I think the research probably for that uh, needs to double down on some of the expense, but seems, uh, you know, clear just for public safety. Obviously, accidents happen with trucks. And so moving that around seems like asking for a greater issue. However, I think micro is the way decentralization is a is a key thread in computing in power microgrids make sense and i think there are other ways of hybrid power generation solar wind natural gas to make micro plants everywhere you're less likely to wipe out you can reroute powder just like you reroute the network traffic right so i think there are a lot of other uh I will say easier, more straightforward, less regulated um, ways to solve that problem. But again, you're highlighting this is a problem. It's never been done before. There's no one else in the world who's making mobile nuclear uh, micro plants. But yet, you know, we have a problem of 
that we know of, right? We do see a lot in the patent area, though. I will say companies need to get a return on their investment in research and development, and they do that through the exclusive rights of patents. So I'm back to the patent system. We see evidence of what's going to happen because companies have to invest to create patents before they use them publicly or publish. So it's a leading indicator. That's what I use on my investments and as we advise funds, but companies as well. You have to file before, long before you get in the public domain in areas like this power generation. Right, right, right. So let, let's circle back to your, uh, your platform, you know, because you keep referring to the pla- uh, the platform that you you created and you know you did found uh, one that's pretty gnarly you know it focuses on patent forecasting i guess for people out there they may be new or maybe they just have an idea they have a business and they're like hey i got a couple cool ideas stuff like that what is a patent forecasting and how can it help in uh investors and entrepreneurs really make better decisions going forward. Sure. And I I touch on this in my book that published earlier in 2022 called The IP Miracle, How to Transform Ideas into Assets that Multiply Your Business. So this question of ideas are unlimited. That's the good news. Like we'll never run out. It's the one true unlimited resource in the world. Thank God. However, they're worth nothing. Ideas in your brain are worth less than nothing. You've got to be able to write them and communicate them. But for somebody who has an idea, maybe it's a small business, maybe it's a just a, an individual, and you think, I have solved this problem in a unique way, in a valuable way, in a way that's going to make commercial impact. I'd like to get a patent. Patent forecasting is the next step. Remember, I'm a recovered engineer, so very state-state about, like, let's invest a little bit. Patents are expensive. Let's invest a little bit, get some data to make a better decision about should I file a patent, right? So the patent forecast software that we use, and patent data is free. You can run it on Google Patents, et cetera, but see what else came before you. That's called prior art. That's what the examiner at the patent office will do. As soon as they receive your application, they're going to run that research and decide how quickly they reject your application, Patents cost a lot to file, like 15,000 plus per application. Don't you want to know your likelihood of success before you get that far? And then in addition to knowing, am I likely to be successful or not, the same prior art research data can help you create a higher quality application because you differentiate from it. You explain in your story. Explain the prior art a little bit, just so that we can get details on what that is. Prior art, generally what I refer to it is, it's patent documents. It's what other inventions came before you in time. You're talking like, for example, the beautiful Gibson Les Paul patent design that's behind me. Is that kind of like what you're you're talking about when you're saying the prior art? Exactly, exactly. So if I'm inventing on top of that, I have to differentiate from it. I have to have some other features or functions or characteristics that are improved, that are new, not existing in that Gibson uh, patent. First time that's actually been helpful during an interview. So uh, I'm glad. Shout out to Gibson. They make beautiful, beautiful things, beautiful instruments. Um, But you have to differentiate from it. You have to be novel or new. That means nothing else exactly like your solution. But it also has to be not obvious to someone who's ordinarily skilled in that area. So that would be the designers, manufacturers of guitars, maybe mechanical engineers, musicians, not obvious. So maybe I have a way of um, improving the tuning automatically, or I have something that's improving the way the guitar functions I could have the exact same footprint as that guitar, but my improvement may be novel or not obvious. That's what you're going for. Guitars and their their patent cases are epic. You know, like Gibson's going after a couple of brands right now because, I mean, who is it? I think it was ESP or some other brand name like that. But it was some company that's been using like the same type of body like a Les Paul uses for like, 60 or 70 years and it's like come on you know they've been doing it that way for 70 years like your your time to argue that has already passed you know 
Uh, but I do get what you're saying. And, it, you know, it is hard now that you said that. And we use the guitar as the example. It's obviously it's clicked on my it clicked in my head because realistically, you've got to look headstocks. I mean, that's one way, but then you also have the body of the guitar. I mean, there's only so many different ways that you can really shape a guitar, um, you know, to make it function. And then you have to mix and match different body types, different headstocks. You know, there's only so many different ways that you can. Yeah. Explorer, Flying V, there's others. Yeah. The Flying V gives you that access to the, like, kind of the lower reach of the strings. That's a functional advantage. It's not just something ornamental, but it's also ornamental, very beautiful. So you could have design padded, how it looks and utility padded, how it functions. Like you're, you're kind of getting two areas for exclusivity and you use those in different ways to keep other people out of your zone, right? Out of your space. Yeah. And I think uh, the guitar, the, the main guitar brands have done pretty good. Although I have seen as of late, there are newer guitar brands coming out. Um, like I think Klos, K-L-O-S. And uh, what they do is, uh, I believe it's like, um, what do they call it? Like that uh, fiber type material, carbon, carbon, like a, uh, Carbon composite, yeah, carbon composite guitar material to make it indestructible uh, and also make it portable as well, too. And doing 3D printed and stuff like that. So like new guitar manufacturers have had to either you're making one offs that you're just selling because you like making guitars. Um, but if you want to mass produce guitars, you have to get extraordinarily creative because Schecter, ESP, Fender, Gibson, um, Epiphone, Squire, um, and there's probably about uh you know, there's Yamaha in there. Uh, you can add it probably another 10 in there uh, to the list of brands that have patterns around the uh, the guitars, the guitar signs, headstock shapes, stuff like that. And it makes it very, very hard to compete. And yet you brought up another good point a few minutes ago. Patterns don't live forever. They're 20 years 20 years life. So what happens when they expire at the end of that life or the, the maintenance fees are not paid, those go into the public domain. And that's what reopens the competition. Wasn't that just happening with uh, a big cartoon uh, as of late? I remember seeing articles a few months ago, uh, somebody Disney, Winnie the Pooh, something like that. The patent was running up. The copyrights instead of patent. So like these different areas of intellectual property work together. Patents only live for 20 years trademarks including the way something looks the shape of it like the guitar that could be a non-conventional trademark trademarks can last indefinitely as long as the company continues to use them in interstate commerce copyrights have a finite life but much longer 75 years after the death of the uh, author the creator or 125 if it's a company so it is a big deal when things come off copyright or off patent because it reopens the competition as to that subject matter, whatever it was. Does that make sense? Can somebody else recopy write it then out of curiosity? Once it's open, it's open. Once it's open, it's open. With copyrights, you can do derivative work. So that's a way to kind of extend the life, but you have to add something new. You have to improve it or go beyond it, right? So here's an example in the artistic domain. Um, there are, um, uh, I guess, kind of uh, the Sesame Street characters, right? Uh, we all know them, Ernie, Bert, Cookie Monster, Big Bird. Well, there's an artist who goes by Cause, K-A-W-S, shout out to him, love his work. But he created, uh, in conjunction with Sesame Street, his uh, sort of signature uh, artistic work is this kind of cartoony skull and crossbone head and like x out eyes. And so he created with Sesame Street all of those characters. They all have the X's on the eyes, but otherwise they're the same. So that's a derivative work, right? So that could be a way to extend that. It's, it's kind of interesting and cool, but yeah, most of the time once it's off patent, off copyright, it's in the public domain, which creates opportunity for more improvement.
That's the whole point of IP systems. Isn't it nice? It's all public area. People can be looking at it, but not practicing until it comes off. So I got two questions that just came up kind of naturally, um, listening to everything that you're talking about. Um, now, again, because like most people, I always mix up if people say patent, copyright or, you know, whatever. I just view it all as IP and throw it under that umbrella. But I believe it was uh, Elon or everybody's uh, favorite billionaire, Elon Musk, was saying like, uh, I believe it was patents are for uh, the weak or something like that uh, for weak minded ideas. Big heart to Elon. Love Elon. I do love him. What actually a lot of people were talking about Tesla, Tesla pulled a move that's been known for some time, right? Everybody said, oh, they're open sourcing their patents and letting anyone use them. That's not what they were doing. Like what they were doing is cross licensing with other EV companies. Why would they do that? Patents give you the right to keep others out. But the benefit to Tesla in cross-licensing with other EV manufacturers, car manufacturers who had patents in EV, is that it kind of amongst themselves eliminated the issue of uh, challenges for infringement, which can be very distracting and expensive for a company. So Elon has always said, yeah, of course they have patents in Tesla on EVs, et cetera. But he has always said their way of staying ahead of all the other car manufacturers is manufacturing. Their automation, their efficiencies, the trade secrets, which also can last indefinitely as long as you can keep them secret. All of that combined with the cross-licensing was a brilliant way to kind of keep the, the, the space open for Tesla, while well, they still have the advantage. Here's another advantage for them. I could talk about Tesla's all day, but their charger network. Okay, no, no, talk. I, I hate people love talking about Elon. I'll talk about it. I'm gonna ask you even a Twitter question then about that too, because you get into some interesting territory that you just mentioned with Tesla, I think also applies to uh, Twitter, but I'll let you finish first. So in, t in Tesla, the other competitive advantage, the barrier to entry that they have over other um, uh, EV car manufacturers and cars is the Tesla supercharger network is for Tesla's only. And it's already across the nation. More, There are more Tesla chargers than any other charge points. They charge faster. It's better. Would you rather wait in line to charge for a few hours behind somebody else's leaf or whatever other Volt or other, other cars, the Volvos and BMWs and all, the Porsches and all of that? Or you go straight to the superchargers that are fast and they're already, there's none of them or 12. I think that they're honestly for cars to work. You know, so when we had one of our environmental people on, they brought up some amazing statistics when we were talking about energy and carbon emissions, stuff like that. Everybody wants the world to be green. And we brought up plastics and she rolled her eyes like, I don't get why environmentalists fight so much about plastics. And I'm like, OK, well, explain that because I thought plastics were evil. And she was like, well, for example, one Metal straw. People are like, let's use metal straws instead of plastic straws. The carbon emission output of one metal straw is the same as a hundred plastic straws. So unless you're going to use that metal straw a hundred times, which most people won't because they'll lose it. Okay. Um, unless it's in their kitchen drawer, you know, if you're using it for travel or stuff like that for your Starbucks drinks or whatever, you know, unless you use it a hundred times, then it's not you know, like the carbon emissions is actually better to use the plastic over the metal straw. I've got that. We do want our planet to be well, to be healthy, the climate, et cetera. But it, we only make those arguments when it's convenient to not use plastics. Can we talk about the disposable masks for a second? Those are way bigger than straws. I've never read anywhere anybody saying the impact in the landfills or in the ocean from these biohazard use masks everywhere, right? And there are millions and millions of them. You use it once and it goes in the landfill and it's huge. Those are so horrible. And yet people love them. People love those masks and wanted those masks and everybody wear them. And yet 
it's the opposite of, okay, we got to eliminate plastics, right? These are synthetic things. The other thing that's inconvenient is diapers. For all parents out there, young parents that have kids in diapers, you want that disposable thing and you want it out and it's going to the landfill and those are synthetic. The super absorbent polymers are not biodegradable. We actually work with a company that's solving that problem and has patents. It's a company in the Raleigh, North Carolina area that has made a biodegradable, biocompostable, super absorbent polymer. But they're not yet out commercially. They invested in the IP and they're moving into commercial applications. But we, we go to this anti-plastic thing so quickly, except when it's inconvenient. I totally, totally agree with you. And you know, part when I bring someone like that on, obviously they have a political stance. So when I try to interview them, okay, you're an environmentalist. I'm going to try to hit both sides of the story here because I like being, I'm down the middle. I'm apolitical. I try to be fair and balanced to everybody. And with her then, I said, okay, well, what about um, the electric cars? Okay. Uh, a lot of people on the right, they'll say, well, look, I mean, how are you energizing? You have power outages in California. You know, you, you're not able to cook, uh, charge your, your car battery. Or for example, a lot of these chargers use, you know, coal, uh, you know, dirty coal to energize it. And the thing is, is that she brought up a good point. I mean, uh, she really came, um, uh, Horvitz uh, was her name, Lizzie Horvitz, in case you want to look up the episode, anybody. But um, she really came with her data and she was like, well, the thing is, is that, yes, it may use coal, but it uses it a lot more efficiently than just using a gasoline vis uh, vehicle nine out of 10 times. You know what I mean? And that's some of the nuance that people don't understand. And also oil and gas, right? We, if we overlook this issue that in the United States of America, we have the cleanest refinery processing of anywhere in the world. Our oil processing into gasoline, the refining process, the refinery process is the cleanest of anywhere in the world. So, you know, there are there are trade-offs on every side, right? The the carbon footprint of making the electric vehicle is still there. And yet zero emissions is better, right? It's better for our lungs. It is better. It is better. But we also have to manage how we roll out the solutions. So, for example, in California, if you've gone all EV and the electric power grid is not going to permit you to charge, there's a standstill. They need to go with nuclear. I mean, that's where I think the micro nuclear plants, uh, they need to do it out there in California because the space that they need for solar panels, stuff like that. Also, a lot of people don't realize this. And um, I brought it up during the interview. The woman I interviewed did not realize this. I'm like, hey, this could be fake news, but I'm pretty certain I got this from a mainstream source. And it was. It was the New York Times. But the damage that solar panels do to the ground, to the animals, to the environment uh, is actually pretty severe. And most people don't realize that nuance when they talk about solar power. And I sent her the New York Times article that was it was within the last year or two that came out. And I was like, yes, yeah, see, I was I wasn't talking at my butt. It was true. And we actually threw it up on the screen during the um, uh interview as well too just so that it was done in post-production but just so that people knew that like yes i was absolutely 100 percent. it wasn't like it came from uh some fake news site it was the new york times that came out with that research post here's the thing here's the thing though all of these problems like these are complex problems to solve so there aren't simple solutions it's not a binary this is good this is bad it's about how do we transition effectively to alternative fuel sources? And that requires some major planning and cooperation, government to private sector, I think in changing people's habits as well. But at the same time, Nuclear got a got a bad rap because of Chernobyl, because of Three Mile Island. I think we need to go back that rap. Yeah, I don't think you'll find any argument for me there, except not mobile, please. I feel like we can make micro plans. Uh, I, I, that's the one point we're going to have to agree to disagree on. If you saw that University of Texas mobile truck with a huge nuclear reactor in the semi truck, 
you'd be like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I want that in my backyard. Just security though, like our power grid is open to security hacks. But what I'm saying is like, these are all complex problems. And if the more people who are trying to solve them, the more solutions we'll be seeing, the more inventive solutions. But I think it has to couple with short term and long term. What about graphene? Um, I keep hearing graphene may uh, have potential for major, um, you know, energy. Like it could be the answer to energy that's past nuclear, that's past uh, fusion power, that's past like graphene could be the ultimate gold mine in uh, the energy world. Does that have a future or is that mostly myth? Do you know anything about that? TBD, TBD. There are a lot of applications of graphene that are helpful. I mean, from building materials to, um, you know, reinforcement of other products. But as a as a fuel source or as a generation, I think TBD, it's too early. I think that's in research mode. It's in research mode. It has to be scalable and, and economically feasible for to make the commercial impact, right? So- and that's the other thing, too. Like, you just said scalable. Uh, that's the other thing. Like, you get back to electric cars, um, like the lithium is a huge problem. And the, the problem with lithium is... China pretty much controls the world supply of lithium. And this was part of our Chips Act uh, discussion about why the Chips Act was necessary. Uh, People were trolling me back in Twitter uh, in February when I did an issue, uh, an episode on the supply chain and why it's bad and why it's only going to get worse. Everybody's like, where do you live in the boondocks? Like my store shelves are filled. And I'm like, please tell me where I can find an Xbox Series X because everywhere globally seems to be sold out. Um, so, you know, trolls got trolled, but anyways, um, uh, you know, and I brought him up. I, when I went, I, uh, I, I hit him hard. Um, I hit it back pretty hard to them because, uh, they obviously didn't listen to the episode. They were just trolling off the text and, uh, that drives me nuts. Uh, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, trolling, uh, an article just for reading the headline, whereas you didn't actually read the whole story and understand what's going on. And, Right, 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 right. So I guess I let's get back real quick to talking Tesla. We were talking about the patents and stuff like that. Amazing discussion so far. It's, I mean, talking patents with you, I could do this all day. Um, but now Elon actually owns Twitter. He's like, he has no idea who the CEO is, but his bio does say that is the chief twit. Now, you have to remember, this is the same guy that just a week ago had in his bio perfume salesman um, or something like that. Uh, So, you know, it is what it is. But he wants to open source the algorithm for Twitter. That's something that now he said that pre-purchase now that he owns it. It's kind of like. I guess you can look at it like running for office. You know, you say that you're going to do something uh, when you become president. But once you become president, you realize, oh, actually, I can't do half of what I promised. And that's why things never change. I feel that that might be happening with Twitter. He's going to do some good things, but he's really not going to open source the algorithm. I mean, isn't that the power? Imagine what what that's like, right? I mean, he he basically if you, uh, liken it to buying a car, right? Um, you, you know, you're you're trying to assess all the information. You've got the specs that the company disclosed. Um, the, the, I think there was a lot of controversy about how many actual users versus the bots, et cetera. So- and he's going through that internal stuff and he has been posting about that too. I have seen that, but so I'm likening it to buying a car where you don't have a chance to drive it. You can't look under the hood. If we're talking about an ICE engine, we're talking about Tesla. There's nothing under that. It's the frunk. But in any case, he's having to now understand the inner workings of it. And, um, you know, well, some of the material that's been posted is the ratio of engineers to managers was quite different than what you would expect. Um, understanding the code, I think it's not something that's an instant activity, even if you put the best software people on it. Obviously, there is a need for transition of some people, but um, he's got a lot of heavy lifting to do. Um, and yet he's one of the most brilliant uh, entrepreneurial minds and uh, technical scientific minds 
in the world. I mean, I've heard that he brought some Tesla people on there to start looking at the code because Tesla is pretty good with code. And really people that he trusts to go through the code, hey, tell me what I have. He's also a coder himself. So he's probably going through the code, but ultimately I think he's going to be there. He's going to figure out what he owns. He's going to discover what he actually has. And then he's going to decide what direction it's going to go. And how to make money with it. Because he's going to do that. Twitter's never been particularly good at um, generating profit, right? So, But he also said that he wants it to be the free speech arena. I mean, maybe this is... Uh... You clean it up. Think about I'm going to parallel this to a non-padded subject, and that's Craig Newmark, Craigslist, right? Um all he did was do what the customers wanted, the users, if you will, on his platform was to begin to make money charging for something that was free to keep the trash out, if you will, the, the noise out of the system. Right. Like the nominal fee that he started charging the five bucks or whatever. Hey, I'd pay. I pay for Twitter Blue already. I pay and then for Twitter he made Blue already. millions of dollars every single month just on the, the advertisements for the real estate, right? Or the mm -hmm. jobs posting. Two things made him a gazillion millionaire, right? And it yep. was just to make the platform better for the user users mm -hmm. to do that. And I think that's where Elon's going to go with Twitter. He's going to Would you pay for Twitter? Would you pay for Twitter? I would. Yeah. Do you pay for Twitter Blue now? Would I pay for Twitter do Blue you now? Pay, do you pay for Twitter Blue as of this interview? Do you pay for it or no? As of this interview, I don't. My Twitter use is not high. So I'm going to say that, but I'm very familiar with it in this sort of discussion. I tweet during sports games, troll people, you know, hate on the Dallas Cowboys, stuff like that. Um, and I throw some tech stuff out there or I, you know, I'll troll some people if I see someone like a, a very stupid take like, oh, I'm leaving this if Elon buys it. And, you know, I notice that the person's still tweeting and it's been a, a couple of days. I'll respond. How come you, you know, still here? Like, thought you left. I would say I would use Twitter more if it were better experience. I, I, I decreased or you know, dropped. Yeah, dropped back because I found my life was better when I wasn't on Twitter because it was a lot of toxic, negative, just really junk, a lot of noise. I would use Twitter more than Facebook and I don't like Facebook anymore. Um, so anyways, I do have one last topic I want to discuss. Uh, the Elon thing took a little bit longer than I thought. We went down so many rabbit holes, but it was fun. Um, the, the last question I have, again, this is going back to patent copyright laws. I, I want to hear your opinion on AI generated art. Oh, yeah. Or even AI generated patents. I think AI generated art. Okay, that's fine. Copyright registration isn't going for that. It's like the monkey taking the selfie. You in the in the US and most countries, the laws provide that you have to be a person to be an author or creator. Um, also with the patent laws, there have been some uh, legal challenges, some litigation from a small group who who has created, who is alleged to create AI that created some inventions, and filed for patents that claiming the AI, the machine, was a, was the inventor. Crazy! I would have just took credit. <laughs> no, I did it. <laughs> but it's proving the point, right? It's more of an academic point, and um, at least one country initially granted and then overturned it. So most countries are not going to provide for a machine to become an inventor. In the U.S., you must be a human being. A person has to be the inventor. What if it's a person that is programming the machine to invent something? Now, this can go for a, an invented item or even art, okay? Because this is what's happening in the art world. You're right. So either in either way, who's creating it? Did If I create a machine that does something... And it's it's something that can produce a, a piece of art or produces an, an invention. Did I invent it? No. If the if the AI invented it, I perhaps cannot claim the inventorship of it. Or that's the kind of logic where you're getting the interesting twist. I'm going to give you is if you think about Sophia, the AI robot who is now a citizen of Saudi Arabia. If she were to invent or create some art on her own, then she could, as a citizen, apply for IP rights in Saudi. And then through the international um, uh, agreements like Patent Cooperation Treaty and go into other countries like that's 
starting to seem to me more like the question that could win. And so, yeah, I think eventually we will see robots with AI who are generating intellectual property. It's not today. The laws will have to address it. So we already discussed about how like your software, for example, okay, how it, it could do the patent forecasting, how it can kind of tell you how much similar art there is to yours, all that type of stuff. Okay. Amazing, amazing software IP, by the way. Uh, that is really awesome to be able to do that. How much harder is your job going to be once it has to start to account for all these AI created items, if it gets down to that? I think that we'll see a higher bar to patentability because of this non-obviousness, right? So the standard of what is obvious to someone of ordinary skill just went to AI pattern recognition, right? So I think it might actually make it harder to obtain a patent, harder to obtain that differentiation. Um, I think that we'll see the volume of issued patents go down when AI becomes a creator. Do you use, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess I don't want to put you in a position where you have to spill the the you know, the can on how your solution works, but with your software itself, I mean, do you incorporate AI into it uh, or any type of machine learning that will be like, hey, look, when you see X, Y, and Z is the same on one, you know, then give recommendations on how it can be better or different. So that way they're not the same. Is that how you do it? We, 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 the initial uh, software, if you will, that I developed under Neopatents um, was based on algorithms only, cladistics or evolutionary biology principles. So we were looking at the algorithm assessing how science and technology was evolving and looking at patterns there. That was how then we layered humans on top of it. But this pivot to use machine learning and some AI helps with the clustering, the grouping, and then pattern recognition, not merely based on an algorithm, right? Because there are things that we have never seen before, and yet then patterns emerge from that. So data emergence, I think, requires that we begin to use machine learning um, more aggressively for identifying anything. Wow, wow. This is, uh, you know, this is totally blow my mind. You you are an expert in so many Fields, you know, I always see someone like you and I see the profile and it's like, okay, um, you know, this sounds fun, but you know, these topics when you're talking about patent law or copyright law, they're not always the most fun to be able to talk about. But when you're able to talk about it with some real examples, especially like Tesla or Elon Musk, you know, the juicy ones, uh, it always gives it like that extra kabang right there to make it, uh, uh, to make the, the episode go to, into hyperspace. So, hey, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing all your knowledge. I learned so much on this show. Please tell me, peep, tell everybody out there watching or listening, one, where they can find your book, and two, where can they find out more about you, about your business, and about your uh, patent forecast software? Sure. So uh, my book, The IP Miracle, is on Amazon and other places wherever you get, uh, you know, online books, uh, audio, etc. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, Janan Glasgow George. Uh, there's just one Janan in the world. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Our patent forecast software is at patentforecast.com patentforecast.com. And you can also find me at my law firm, Neo IP, N-E-O-I-P, Neo IP assets, because we create assets, right? Thank you. Okay. Hey, Jenny, Jenny, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. This has been an amazing episode. And, uh, you know, definitely, I want to get you back on sometime on the future, maybe during one of our live streams with my uh, co-host, Adeta. She's uh data-driven, very analytic, and uh, we cover a lot of topics that I think, you know, based off our conversation today, you love talking about. So I'd love to. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. We'll see you then. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Wow, that was such an incredible 
chat with Janine, wasn't it? I, I thought it was amazing. First, though, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business, please do us a favor. Share us out to your friends, your colleagues, your family, wherever it may be, wherever you dwell on the interwebs, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, even mine. Share us out on mines, wherever you want to go. I just appreciate the help of getting people like Janan and also Shark Bite Biz out there trending. Now let's get back to the real rock star of this episode, Janan. Okay. I love patent law and I love software. I mean, let's face it. I'm in the software industry and it's something I have a passion for. And I love people coming up with awesome solutions to problems. Having company like Janens that can help you determine your level of success for your ideas It's critical. I mean, let's face it, knowing beforehand how similar or not, you know, your idea is to existing patterns is one of those things that can make a huge difference in your success. Do you want to be down and out just because you were unsuccessful on trying to get a patent? Or do you want to know the best path to success beforehand, what changes you have to make, what tweaks need to be done, so that way you can have a big enough differential to where the patent office is like, you know what, this is a new idea, or I don't know, I could be wrong with this, but I believe there's a thing to where you can build onto existing things that are still new and still have some level of success with that. I mean, that's really what Janan offers. And to me, it's pretty amazing. Awesome stuff, Janan. Thank you for coming on, sharing about your mission of helping new businesses launch their ideas and really have some teeth for their patent argument. It's pretty awesome if you ask me. I think most people that listen to her interview will agree it's pretty gnarly. So question of the day, have you ever filed for a patent? If so, I'd love to hear about your experience, about what happened down below in the comments. If you're watching on YouTube, do you want to be on the show? If so, interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Please don't forget to join the channel. $3 a month, you can become a baby shark. Or if you want to help us out financially, just hit the super thanks button. If you watch the video, there's a little heart with a dollar sign on YouTube. Just hit that $1, $5, $20, whatever you can. Every dollar helps us work and do our mission of getting the best knowledge to help you with the three G's. That's personal growth, professional growth, and business growth. It helps accomplish all of that with these excellent interviews that we're doing each and every week. So you all know this by now, but I'll tell you once again, I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Piz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 